Blog Talk Radio. Listen, for those of you that are going through, for those of us that are waiting on His promise, understand God has not forgotten you. When times get tough, you got to look up to heaven and encourage yourself and say, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Our goal is to help others be more, do more, and have more. I'm your host, Gregory Turner. And I'm your co-host, Brian J. Henderson. Brian, we have somebody back on with us tonight. I'm excited to have him on, but also, Brian, the last time he was here, man, I'm telling you, he broke me down, and I I just think tonight is going to be a tough one for me, but... I, I just believe that something good is going to definitely come out of this interview. Absolutely, Greg. And, you know, I, I I agree with you. The last show that we did with him was, wow, it was probably one of the most powerful shows that I can say that we've ever done. Yes. And because it was just so real, he he put the way that he put his words together he made you feel like you were there witnessing it. And that's the hard part. Yes. That's the hard part. You know, Greg, um, I'm going to start off the show like we have been doing for the past couple of months here, Um, just trying to put everybody in the mindset of the struggle and the things that the people in Haiti are going through. I had a friend of mine send me an email, and he talked about one of the biggest things right now that's going on in Haiti you know, aside from the devastation from the earthquake, is that the number of rapes and beatings have increased among uh, the women in Haiti. You know, and I just want to bring that point out to tell people that, you know, the folks down there are hurting. They need help. They need our prayers. They need our financial support. But most importantly, they need our prayers because there's such a a feeling of hopelessness there that, people are resorting to doing things that they normally wouldn't have done, you know. And, Greg, you know, I get a little emotional when I talk about that because I have such a a love for people and a love for the children, and the children are being victimized as well. You know, so for our listeners, we want you all to continue to to send up your prayers for for that nation and for those people and also continue to uh, support them financially because they have a long road ahead of them. You know, Greg, I, I want to go ahead and introduce our guest, because we have our, we have our uh, good friend back with us, and then yeah. he's brought a friend as well. And so yeah. let's go ahead and introduce special guests, uh, the White House boys, Mr. Roger Dean Kaiser and Mr. Andrew Puel. We welcome you to the show, guys. I'm glad yeah. to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys yes. for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me, too. Yeah, thank you so much. Brian, I'm going to let you go first. Guys, Hello? you there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I just I, want to make sure that both of you are on the call. That's well, good. Oh, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, lightning just struck and everything went off in my house, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. But go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry. No, I was going to uh, welcome you guys to the show, and um, I want you guys to just Give us a little uh, brief, well, not necessarily brief, but just tell us about why you're here. Greg and I know, but our listeners, 
they may not be familiar with the White House boys and who they are and, you know, what the whole deal is behind the White House boys. Okay, I'll, I'll start off. Um, uh, now, since we talked last, one of the original White House boys uh, that actually worked with me that started this actually died in back surgery here about probably a month ago. Mm. And we've lost about probably five, three or four or five of the guys in the last uh, six months. So, you know, a lot of the guys are elderly. Uh, but what it was is back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, a lot of the children uh, were sent off to the uh, the Florida School for Boys at Mariana, which was the local reform school in Mariana, Florida. And uh, most of them were there. I would say 95% of them were there, not for really any serious crimes, but were there uh, anywhere from the age of uh, 8 all the way up to maybe 15, 16 years old. And they were sent there for smoking cigarettes, listening to this, as the judge said, this ungodly Elvis Presley music, which was contaminating our, our youth and uh, probably skipping school. Now, there were a few there that were, I wouldn't really call it uh, stealing cars, though that's what it was. It was more joyriding at that time. And uh, they were sent away to the reform school. And uh, this was a very bad part of Florida's history. And the boys were, uh, many boys were just taken to a building they called the White House and just beaten with a leather strap until they were just totally bloody. Uh, some were sent to the hospital with, for stitches. Uh, some were, um, how can I put this, some were beaten so badly that they were unable to have children. They had to have surgery, surgeries between their legs. Uh, and you, I, I worked on this uh, <clears throat> for probably 17 years, and I couldn't get anybody to believe me that something like this could happen, that it was so terrible uh, that nothing like this could possibly happen in the United States of America. And I worked and worked for years and years. I contacted uh, the governors in Florida. The last one, I think, was Governor Bush, uh, Jeb Bush. And I got sort of a little bit of an apology, so I knew then I was probably on the right track. But I still couldn't get anybody in the news media to listen to me. Well, I went in one day, and I joined, uh, I think, this thing called Classmates.com. And when it got down to registering your high school, the only high school I ever went to, was the school at Mariana. I guess that was a high school, so I put down, I said, okay, Florida School for Boys at Mariana. Well, a month or two later, I was getting emails from guys who were signing up who had gone to the same school, and we started talking about the beatings and, and this and that, and for a while, I thought it was just me. Maybe I was just one that couldn't take it, you know, as bad as it was, and I was so bloody when I came out, I couldn't even see straight. Nobody could even recognize who I was, and so I started finding out that some of these guys weren't just guys that, who came out of Mariana who went on to have a prison record and kill people or whatever. A lot of these guys came out to be uh, uh, authors. They came out to be uh, people in the music industry and the television and movie industry. Uh, some of them became uh, a couple, became officers in the Army, uh, ranger captains, things like this. So I finally got these guys together, and I said, how was it for you guys? They said it was one of the most brutal things I've ever experienced. The Army captain said, I would rather go back and serve another year in Vietnam than to go back to the White House and face that again. That's how bad it was. And so we sort of banded together and we formed the White House boys, and we tried to expose this. And, of course, uh, Florida finally invited us up to Mariana. They had a closing of the White House building, said it would never be opened again. They put a plaque up sort of apologizing, though they said it wasn't really an apology. And uh, then the newspaper got hold of it, and uh, it sort of just went crazy. Uh, 
and the St. Petersburg Times started digging up all the stories about uh, the graveyard out in the uh, in the wilderness there where boys were buried. There was some 52 boys still missing, and it just kept going up and up and up until finally a lawsuit was filed uh, asking for compensation for the three or 400 men who had come forward. And so they did the investigation. They say they accounted for all the graves, all the, all the boys who had been buried there. Um, they sort of whitewashed everything. Uh, they went around scaring people that, so they wouldn't come forward. And so, uh, of course, before that's when I wrote the book, The White House Boys, which actually broke the story. And now what we've done is, is we've taken the FDLE report, which is a big cover-up, and we have written a book called The Truth, You Decide. And it tells exactly how uh, FDLE uh, covered up the investigation, how they, as far as I'm concerned, and this is strictly a personal uh, opinion, uh, how they intimidated uh, the men, making them look as though they were just old, senile old men who couldn't remember, uh, you know, whether they looked out the door or the window first when they saw something. Um, and so Andrew and I got together and we wrote the book, The Truth You Decide, which exposes everything that they did. It tells all the things that we were able to find out of what they didn't tell. Like if somebody worked for them who was a state employee, uh, said, yeah, we saw it, and it was bad. What these men saying is true. Well, they w- they didn't report that in, in their report. Or if they did report it, it was just made out to be sort of a minor type of incident. So that's basically where we're at at this point. Awesome. And, Andrew, uh, tell us what happened to you. Were, were you in there when um, Roger was there? I was there after Roger. What What year were you there, Roger? I was there in 59 and 60. Okay, I was there in 66 and 67, but I didn't, uh, I never went to the White House, and I never, uh, I wasn't sexually molested like some of the boys were. Uh, I had the experience of kind of having some, my family had some political influence, and so I think I had some protection over me while, while, while I was there, but I first heard about this back in, I think it was 2008 in December. I heard about it on the news, and I called Roger, and I told him I had been in the school, you know, and I, I told him about some abuse that I that I had saw of other students, you know, and so uh, me and Roger started, you know, talking with each other, and I I live pretty close to Marianne. I live in Pensacola, and mm-hmm. so I was able to travel over there and start doing some research and Roger gave me a bunch of names he said okay go go research him you know so we started where I was kind of the researcher and Roger took everything that I was working on and put it on to the website and it eventually led to this book you know we we all waited for the uh for the uh FDLE report to come out and when the when the first report came out on the graves it, you know, I thought, well, maybe that was too difficult to, to, you know, to really to do that part of it, you know. But then I still had hope for honesty in the, in the second part of the abuse of the students. And when the second part of the uh, the abuse part of the uh, uh, investigation came out, um, it just looked like a whitewash. It they lessened everything and. And that's when Roger and I decided that we would kind of prepare our own report, so to speak. Okay. Well, 
tell you what, you guys are doing a wonderful thing. And, Roger, tell us where are we now with the, um, I'm not going to say the final investigation, but where are we now with the new findings? Well, basically we're waiting now to see what kind of a response we'll get from the, from the book. Uh, we do. We uh, we did, of course, lose the the lawsuit that we had against Florida, uh, but that was basically whether or not too much time had passed. So, a lot of the uh, the crimes that were committed against the boys, the rapes and the uh, not so much the murders, because they pretty well covered that up. But the statute of limitations pretty well um, uh, protected those who uh, had actually abused the boys, and and one of them was, of course, was Troy Tidwell, and we took him before deposition uh, and of course he denied everything um, basically right now we had to fulfill the legal aspects before the Florida Senate would let us in on a bill which is Senate Bill 0048 which is asking for compensation for the men who are still living and that will go into the Senate uh, next session uh, that was sort of set aside um, I forget what they called it they didn't deny it they just set it aside until the legal aspects uh, you actually have to conclude any legal uh, options in court before you can proceed to the Senate, and so we had to wait for that. And that didn't come out until probably about a month and a half ago, and, of course, it was too late then to get into the Senate this year. So we are scheduled to go in next year to ask for compensation. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Wow. You know, I, and listen, it, it, I'll tell you, Greg, it's hard to listen to, you know, and this is no way uh, any disrespect to you guys, but it's hard to listen to the things that that you all went through. You know, it, it's really hard to listen to. And I can imagine, you know, how difficult was it for you to write about what happened to you? Well, it, it, it was pretty difficult for me uh, to write about it originally in the first book, The White House Boys. Uh, because I had sort of shut it out. You know, I sort of figured, well, it's the past. I, I, I guess I, I got over it. I didn't really realize at the time. Um, I've always, I, I suppose, been a, a good person with a good heart. I've always helped others. I did have a very troubled childhood because I was raised in an orphanage. I've never, never had a mother or father. Um, and so, of course, once I left the orphanage and went to reform school, I thought, you know, I, I must be going to heaven. It couldn't be any worse than, you know, living in the orphanage where Mother Winters was molesting me from the age of six to, to fourteen. Uh, but boy, I mean, I, I went from the from the frying pan into the fire. And I think at the age of fourteen, I it really did something to me to um, li- to leave the orphanage, watching TV all those years, the black and white TV, seeing what was happening over in Germany. You know, people being uh, beaten and the Jews being killed and people being burnt. And I thought, how could that be? How could they do that to people? And, of course, I, I lived in the orphanage in a very secluded area. I, I, we weren't allowed outside those six-foot chain-link fences. And so when I got to Mariana, I mean, I'm hearing about, uh, you know, black people downtown. This is a very high KKK area. And here I'm, I'm hearing people are hanging black people in trees downtown. There's a Germans there. I just couldn't quite find out. I couldn't figure out what was going on in this supposedly this wonderful America that everybody had outside those six foot fences that I had. And so, uh, uh, of course, when they started beating and I and I was hearing of boys being killed, 
I thought, it just did something to me. I thought, this isn't the way this country is supposed to be. Something's wrong here. And it changed my whole life. And I think it almost made me a very distrustful person. Um, I've been married six times, and uh, I think I said this on one of the last radio shows. I said, I con- I've contacted now, as of a couple of months ago, every one of my ex-wives, except for one who's deceased. And I said, well, what was it? What was it about me that, that why the marriage didn't work? And they said, Roger, you're one of the nicest, kindest individuals and most responsible individuals we've ever met. But you are the most, um, what's the word, <laughs> uh, unemotional bastard, excuse the language, that we've ever met. It was very difficult for me to love anybody after, I could could have probably loved people after seeing what I saw on TV with the Germans and all this, because that was them, that was overseas, that was foreigners. But to actually see it in my own country, it did something to me. And I think that's what drove me all those years. All those years was the fear that I have lived with living in the United States of America. Wow. Brian, uh, in the first of the book, we put a warning, you know, warning people that some people will find what we've written disturbing, you know. And uh, in, in my statement in the book, I asked Roger, this is a quote, I said, uh, let's see here. Uh, Do you think we'll ever have normal lives again? No, Roger responded. We, we've got these guys' stories in our heads now, and that's where they're going to stay until the, until the day we die. Um, I, I hope Roger is wrong, but after seeing what I've seen and heard over these past year or two, I'm afraid he might be right, and that saddens my heart greatly. It is a sadness I will find very hard to live with for the remainder of my life as well. It, this, it, writing this book and, and doing what we've done this last year, it's been one of the toughest things I, I've ever had had ever done, really. It's just... Causes depression and sadness, and um, I don't think you can do this kind of work without without uh, experiencing a personal loss in your life. So yes, and yeah. Andrew, you, you said that you had some type of protection because of your family uh, members. Um, did you <clears throat> did did you ever think, wow? Um, I just wish that everybody else in here could be treated like me. Did you ever think that that you were special in there, even though you saw a lot of things and heard a lot of things? Uh, did you ever think that you were special? No, I didn't. I didn't even consider it back then. I, did, I didn't consider it really until this last couple of years when I heard what happened to other other people, you know, even though I, I did see some abuse that I did report to the FDLE myself. And uh, that was one, another one of the things that one uh, started us writing the book was because the things I reported to the FDLE didn't, the FDLE didn't exactly report it the way that I said it to them, you know. So we, Roger and I said, well, let's, let's check with these other people to see what they said, if, if what, what they said correspond corresponds with what the, um, the FDLE said they said, and what we found out was when we did that, the people's stories were much more terrible than the one or two lines that the FDLE assigned assigned to their 
their testimony. Wow. And, and Roger, um, I, I know that a lot of people, you've seen a lot of people, there are a lot of graves, there were a lot of beatings, there were a lot of everything, uh, and you said to Andrew that you don't think that we'll, you'll ever live a, a regular life. Um, where are you now as far as your, your, your mental stability and, and the nightmares and, and this type of thing? Well, uh, I I don't think I have too too much of a problem as far as nightmares or anything like that. Uh, the worst thing that it's done for me is, I, I guess the best way to explain it is, is this, is you had a lot of guys who came out of Mariana who were there for smoking or skipping school, whatever, minor things, and they were treated so badly and beaten so badly that they came out of that place hating people. And now I, I'm, I'm just sort of making this up because most of the guys did not turn out to be murderers and rapists and all this stuff. Uh, but even though they did go on to crime, burglary, things like that. And I attribute that to the way they were treated. They just hated society when they came out of there. Well, when I came out, of course, I ended up going to, uh, I got out of the reform school, and I made my way to jail a few times. I went into the Army. I kicked out of the Army. I was just very confused. And then finally I made my way to prison. And I walked out of prison, on, uh, and I went to prison for buying a six-pack of beer at a party. Um uh, I think I was 19 or 20 at the time, and uh, I escaped twice, so I ended up spending three years altogether. When I walked out of prison on February the 6th, 1969, never again have I ever been in trouble, but that was the first time I've ever been free of the system. And I guess probably after about 10 years and several marriages, I started getting involved in things like the White House Boys, not at that time, but just things like this. Uh, I was involved in an investigation on Dateline, uh, which was called Exposé at that time, when I was an Army inspector at the Army Ammunition Plant in Riverbank, California, uh, making ammunition, which killed 22 soldiers from Hartford, Connecticut. So I exposed that, lost my job. And what that did to me is, I, I won't say that I really got a rush from that, but what I did is I found a way to get even with the... I won't say society, with the, the people who had control of me, who abused me and abused other children and other people. And I found that there was a way that I could get even with them by exposing what they were doing to children today. And so I have figured out how to take that. I won't call it a hatred. It's not a hatred. But I've taken those terrible feelings, those negative feelings, and I use the legal club to beat them with it in what I consider to be a justifiable uh, means. And I, once this is over, I don't know what I'm going to do because there's, I've got to find somebody else to beat, so to speak, I guess. <laughs> somebody, there's got to be somebody else doing something wrong somewhere, you know. I mean, I'm really after the government about this, uh, you know, the stamp thing, which I won't go into that. You know, once you sell somebody a stamp, if it says two cents, and it ought to be worth something, then they, 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 they have an obligation to deliver that. That was a contract, so, but I won't go into that. That's just the type of things that I get involved with where I see wrongs, and I want to right them. Mm-hmm. Hi, Brian. This is Andrew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, I've talked with one guy, when he got out, he planned on going back with this other boy that got out, and they were going to go back and kill their abusers. 
Now, there's something wrong when when you got teenage boys planning on going back and committing murder. On, I mean, you got a state institution that is not reforming children, but uh, actually turning children into murderers and criminals. You know, and uh, there was a couple of guys I've heard before that had planned on going back there and 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 killing those people and that's that's a lot of hatred to instill into a, a young mind well and andrew and there's also the one we won't mention a name that wanted to he was going to get a uh, he was going to get a, an airplane fill it with gas like the 9-11 thing and run it into the florida capitol and this was way before 9-11 ever happened these are wow. some of the things that went through these kids heads yeah there there there's um I've seen some pretty serious uh, mental conditions because of what the state of Florida did to these men, and that's been the, that's been my driving force. Uh, my, I'm a Christian, and my original reason for joining was I was hoping to uh, tell people about Jesus and about how all the all the healing that Jesus had done in my life, and that's still one of my still one of my hopes today is I can. I can, you know, try to bring some of these guys to Jesus because only Jesus can really do this healing that needs to be done in in their lives. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, that's powerful. Go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just saying that's a powerful statement. That's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, you know, I can imagine what I, I, I can't imagine what went through your heads when these things were going on. You know, I mean, when you when you really think about it, you guys were youth, and you know, you had not, you know, up until this point, seen anything that you could consider normal. You know, so to that, to you, that was normal, and that's and that's a problem. You know, to, for these young kids to think that it's okay to retaliate in that fashion for someone who's done something to you. You know, that's that. I think that school set a bad precedent for, you know, for all young people. And for you to say that you're gonna that your your passion is to go out and tell people about the redeeming power of Jesus, man. I hey, I applaud you for that because I know when I talk about things in my past that weren't necessarily the best things that happened to me. I know how difficult it is, even though I'm I freely talk about them. They always put me back into the mindset of where I was. So, you know, for you guys to talk about this, you know, it's I, I kind of almost know how you feel, but I couldn't imagine going through that. Well, one of the one one of the problems that we're having right now is, and uh, again, I may have mentioned this on another show, and, and it's a big problem. I uh, there was a I can't remember his name. There's a black minister in Atlanta uh, who uh, made a comment one day about why uh, uh, I'm not doing much to expose what actually happened to the black boys. And evidently he didn't keep up with the case because uh, the first three to file the lawsuit were the Horn brothers, which were two, 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 two black uh, African-American boys, and myself. And we were the first ones. But the problem we're having now is that many of the black men, they've been unwilling to really tell their stories and, I asked several of them why, and what they told me was they fear that the government 
or the state of Florida would somehow uh, get hold of the government and cut off their Social Security checks. So they're they're really you know afraid to speak up. And though the white boys had it pretty bad, the black boys believe me they were treated twice as bad as the white boys. And I, and I suspect uh, I really suspect that the truth is known that more black boys are buried and kill, killed and buried up there on the Mariana campus than were the white boys. Um, we've tried for over a year. Uh, in fact, I think, uh, Andrew, did you send Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton a copy of the book, or did I do that? Yeah, it, yes, I did. Oh, okay. We've tried for more than a year to get Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton involved in the case, but they refused to answer. So wow. we've mailed them a copy of the book, and I hope they'll change their minds. Mm. Wow. Yes, somebody needs to organize the African Americans because people have to have their stories documented you know, when they do the Senate bill next year, you know, let's say they say let's say they're going to give everybody like fifty thousand dollars. I don't know what the amount would be, but you know, a lot of people are going to start coming out of the woodwork. Oh yeah. And the best thing would be to have your story documented now. And Roger and I are willing to do that. If if any any of the guys want to call us, we'll put, we'll write your stories, or you write your story, and if you want us to work on it a little bit, we'll work on it. And we'll get it, put it on the uh, website if, you, if, if they so want it that way. And then they can have their stories documented ahead of time so when, when this settlement does come down, you know, it won't look so fishy that, <laughs> that somebody comes in and says, oh, yeah, that happened to me, you know. Right, right. So we want to organize as many people as, uh, you know, as anybody that was abused, we, w- we want them to be compensated um, you know, right, right. You know, I I, and I really, and I don't know who the the pastor or whatever. I don't know who he was or what, you know, or what he was thinking. But for him to try to vilify you, and you're trying to actually bring about uh, awareness of it, you know, I think it to me it seems a little short sighted on his part. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I just remember today, it was Charles Rambo, and I called left messages at his number trying to tell him, look, we need somebody in, in sort of a somewhat powerful position, especially a minister, to try to contact these guys and, and try, to, try, to, try to band them together and have them tell their stories. Somebody needs to tell them, look, Florida can't hurt your Social Security, but you just can't convince them of that. Oh, so yeah. we really need, 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 need some help on that. Have you guys yeah, received any backlash for writing your books and standing up? Well, only from the <laughs> the main one is the Jackson County News. They say we're trying <laughs> to destroy their reputation. Now, uh, now there have been some good things that have come out. I want to mention this so I don't forget it. We did manage to get Arthur G. Dozier, who was the superintendent there for years, who was who he was a terrible man. He beat boys almost to death if he didn't kill any. We did manage to get them to remove his name off the school, and it's now going to be called, I think, the North Florida, uh, what is it, Andrew, the North Florida Youth Development Center. Yeah, you, yeah, that's it. And they're, they're downsizing the amount of boys that are there. They're getting rid of the boys that are um, sexual, uh, I won't call them sexual predators, but uh, charged with sexual crimes. They're sending them to a special center, I think, down at Okeechobee. And they're going to bring in psychologists to help these boys that are there now. So I think things are really starting to improve. Here's my question: Why are they, why are they doing these things if nothing was wrong? Uh, well, they say just because of budget cuts. 
Ah. I guess that's a convenient answer. Absolutely. Well, no, we uh, we have put a lot of pressure on them. I mean, like, well, when I say we, I mean CNN and and a lot of the a lot of the bad press has a, has forced them to do certain things. Uh, they've, they've had people resign and they've fired people and moved them into different positions. Um, I do think they have somebody in there now. I think they finally see the light, and I think they do have a gentleman there. I don't remember his name that's taken over, and I think he really. Is starting to see that uh, you know you're not gonna you're not gonna solve the juvenile delinquency problem by slapping these boys in the back of the head and kicking them in the butt every time they don't eat fast enough. Right. Uh, they need to come out of there with feeling like they're worth something, and they're just not getting they, that. Brian, they had a, a a one one reporter in uh, St. Petersburg, Ben Montgomery. He mm-hmm. went up there and he snuck onto the campus. And he went into one of these old cottages that that had been condemned, like. And he went and he found this list of names in the toilet. It was a list of names from 1988. And so he researched all those names. I think there was like uh, 300 names on on the list. And and of that he of that list he found 97 percent of of those names on that list um, went to prison, went back to prison. Yeah, the recidivism rate was 97% in 1988. So that tells you what a good job they were doing up there. Wow, 97%. Yes. That's terrible. That I mean, uh, and it could even have been higher because some names they couldn't even find. They couldn't find you know, what happened to them. They only found really one person that never went to, print, went to jail out of those 300 names. Uh that seem to live a successful life. There's something wrong with a, you know, a reform school. You know, you, you reform school. You think they're they're kind of reforming these people, but it, it didn't seem to be working up there. Well, let me let me give you a good example. Now, there was about probably oh I'd say anywhere from ten to thirteen guys that uh, they talked to that they said reported that Mariana was a good experience. So what do they call it, Andrew? A positive experience. Positive experience. Right, but what they didn't say was this. They didn't say that Mariana and the, the uh, Mariana School was a positive experience in their life by giving them some type of uh, an education and rehabilitation and training. What they told them was, Mariana, the Florida School for Boys, gave me more than my parents gave me. At least I had food and clothes. I didn't have that at home. And shoes. I didn't have that at home. So they made it sound like these 13 guys were saying that it was a positive experience. There were only I looked at this no different than a guy a a a, a woman who who's married to was married to two different guys and they said, "Well, my life with John is a lot better than it was with Jim because John only beats me four times a month." <laughs> wow. You see what I mean? Well, of course it's better than what you had, but that doesn't mean it was a positive experience. And this is how they spun the whole investigation. Hmm. Uh, let, me, let me give you another good example. Everybody they talked to, now I was in, involved in, in, in seeing one boy that was beat to death, uh, and, and, and we put him in a bathtub, and he, and he laid there and bled to death. And so when they, when they here's just an example of, of, of the two different ways that they, they, they interrogate somebody. And uh, so the first thing they would say is, now you have to remember, you're under oath. Did you see a boy beat to death? Yes, sir. How do you know he was dead? 
Well, he wasn't breathing. His front teeth were knocked out, and his lips were blue, and his tongue was hanging out. Did you check his pulse? No. Did you check his breathing? No. Do you have any medical training that would allow you to determine if someone was dead or not? No. Well, then. However, when the instructor charged with beating the boy to death was interviewed, the questioning would go something like this. Did you beat a boy to death at the White House? No. Well, there are several reports that you beat a boy to death with a leather strap. Well, that never happened. I remember spanking the boy for smoking, but that's it. It was just a spanking. The men are also saying that the boy disappeared from the school after that. Nobody ever saw him again. Do you have any idea what might have happened to him? No, I turned him over to the director. Uh, of course, the director's deceased now, and that's all I know. Okay, thank you, sir. That's the way it went. Hmm. They made sure we knew we were under oath. They did not put them under oath. They would question the men until, oh, how can I put it? It's, it, it was really strange. It's, uh, uh, they would question the men in, 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 in some instances for several hours, just waiting for the men to make a, a, a misstatement. Uh, or to say something wrong. And uh, right. uh, uh, after 50 years, of course, the men are going to make some, some mistakes or misstatements. That's to be expected. But when a boy has been jerked off his bed in the middle of the night and, and been raped, he remembers that rape very well. However, he may not remember exactly what time it was or what color his pajamas were. If those things could not be remembered, the time and the color of the pajamas, then his entire testimony would be disregarded as useless. That's how they ran their entire investigation. They made the men yes. out to be senile old uh, codgers, but the uh, employees, and, and now most of these guys are 50 and 60 years old, but they're just old senile codgers. But the men who did the beating are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, but they're intelligent, very, very good at remembering almost every single thing. That's how it went. There was two men that were raped by Troy Tidwell, and Troy Tidwell still living, and Troy Tidwell refused to give any statement to the uh, to the FDLE. He would not be sworn in. Um, but the two men, John Patterson and Robert Straley, both of those men, uh, FDLE, went out of their way to discredit them of what they said about the rape and stuff, and. Roger and I have found three other men in this book that that implicate uh, Troy Tidwell in the rape of boys. Wow. Now, one of the things... This. Let me ahead. ask you guys this. Do you think all of this, the cover-up, do you think all of this is because of money? Do you think that's the, the main issue? Abs well, it, there, it's two things. Now, money is not the first issue. It's the second issue. The first issue is Florida went into this investigation not necessarily to tell the truth or to tell a lie. What they wanted to do is they wanted to minimize. They knew the evidence was overwhelming. I mean, there was no doubt that it happened. There was too many respectful men. Two of them are millionaires that are White House boys. So they couldn't say that they're liars. But what they wanted to do, they wanted to minimize how bad the beatings and the rapes or even the murders were, trying to... Um, trying to limit the criminal um, prosecution, possible criminal prosecution of any of the employee, of their employees, which would make the state of Florida responsible, which would lead to the amount of money that would be paid. Mm. So that's what it was all about. I think it's about money. Well, a Andrew does. I, I, I think it was more, I mean, uh, well, I suppose it does have a little bit to do with money because look at the 
you know, the 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 uh, situation the states are in right now. Because well, even if you have this, three or four hundred guys, you know. Roger, let me ask you this. Do you think this will be setting a precedent if they were to go back and look at all of the things that happened at the White House? Do you think that this will be setting a precedent for them to go back and look at look into some of the other reform schools throughout the state of Florida? Because I'm sure if this happened, you know, back in the 60s or whenever, whenever it did have 50s, the late 50s, early 60s, do you think that this will cause them to go into other areas like in Miami if they had them reform schools down there? Well, uh, they, the they, they've already done that. Now, a lot of the guys that came forward were guys who were beaten. They weren't beaten at the White House because they were at Okeechobee. That was the other boys' school. But they were beaten in the library, and they were beaten just as bad. Now, they are a little concerned, I think, because there's a lot of girls that have started coming forward who were supposedly uh, raped in the uh, – in what they call the uh, the bomb shelter at the uh, Ocala Girls School. I think it's called Forest Lawn, I'm not sure. And one of these women is actually a city councilwoman even today down in South Florida, and I have a letter from her. So I oh. think they're worried about that. But, uh, again, you know, they're going to just try to limit it, uh, limit the amount, of, you know, make it appear not to be as bad as what it really is. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, these girls were little sluts. I mean, yeah, they came on to the employees, you know, and so, you know, it's not really rape. I mean, you know, uh, that's what they'll try to make it out to be. Wow. wow. And I think most of these girls, of course, are married. They're grandmothers now, and who wants to go through that, you know? Wow. You know, where do you guys, well, let me ask this question. Where do you guys uh, hope to get from the book? Uh, I think about 1295. I'm making a joke there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. I know. <laughs> the, uh, uh, okay. I thought it was now, 14. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, no, as, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing we can do about what happened to us that'll be settled in the senate but what this book needs to do is this and say for example you have a child who uh goes out and gets uh that's a good kid and he goes out with some of his buddies and the next thing you know you get a call from the police department oh boy my boy's been caught he these other kids stole a car he was in the back seat they had some dope and oh boy well, the next thing you know, you're before the judge. Judge, please, he's a good kid. He's going to the reform school, and off he goes. And then they go down there and say your your boy is there for three months, and all of a sudden you get a call, he's been killed. FDLE is assigned to investigate that. Well, the good that's going to come out of this book is FDLE has to be forced to go into an investigation to tell the truth, not to try to limit the amount of liability that would come back on the state of Florida. And I think I said this on the last show. I look at the FDLE being appointed to look into these rapes and murders by the state of Florida at no different than Charlie Manson being appointed by the state of California to investigate whether he did or did not kill Sharon Tate and the LaBianca family. No different whatsoever. There should have been an independent counsel. And that's what needs to be stopped. Their form of investigation, the manner in which their investigation is done, needs to be stopped immediately. You know, and and it's funny you say that because I've never heard where the state would investigate themselves and then have no findings, and they not have an independent investigator come in. 
Well, you know, even if that in, independent investigator is a, you know, in my opinion, it should be a federal investigator that's not tied to, in any shape or form to the states. That way it could be something that would be independent. Right. Well, we have tried and tried and tried to get the feds to come in, but they say that they can't see where there's any uh, civil rights violations. Well, I would say beating somebody to death or killing somebody or raping somebody. Now, how the state of Florida got by that is evidently the law says that the statute of limit. No, I, I, I think that's just that's being changed in the next few months if it hadn't already been changed. They say, uh, what was it, Andrew, that uh, the statute of limitations applies even for the rape of a child unless the child was under the age of, what, nine? Twelve. Twelve. Under, and, yeah. and there was only one boy who was under that age, and I don't think he'll come forward. I'm not sure what the story is on that. Wow. Now, we do have one story in the book about a, uh, a murder. And we have, Roger and I have both talked to this man, and uh, we have checked out his story uh, through records and stuff, and everything checks out. And but he's afraid to come forward. He's too afraid to come forward. And right now we're working on, um, I'm working on up here in Pensacola with a uh, with a federal prosecutor to to step in. So maybe the feds will step in and. Um, and, and investigate it fairly. Right. Well, let me give you a little bit of a rundown on what we're talking about because this is uh, basically how the murders happen other than being beaten to death at the White House. Uh, this, this, I'll call him a boy, was picked up, and he was handcuffed. Uh, his hands and legs were handcuffed, and then they were shackled together behind his back, put into the state car. Troy Tidwell was there. He, he was a, a one-armed man. He was the... Uh, the one that did the majority of the beatings there, him and, and R.W. Hatton. And they drove to another cottage, I think Jefferson Cottage, and they picked up another boy. Well, he was laying on his stomach in the back seat of the state car, and he heard all this cursing and yelling and screaming. Next thing you know, the door opens, and this kid's handcuffed, and they handcuffed his things. They threw him in. Tidwell gets into the car by himself, and they're headed up. They, they took it to be either the White House or to lock up on the hill, which was uh, where they would take the kids and lock them up for 30, 40 days or so. And uh, uh, Tidwell and this boy kept cursing at one another. So finally Tidwell stops, uh, slams on the brakes, and he says, so you think you're a tough guy, do you? And so he started the car again, and they drove quite a ways, and the man said, I knew we weren't going to lock up because it only takes like five, six, seven, eight minutes to get to lock up, and we drove for like 20 minutes. He said, so then the car stops, and then Tidwell gets out. He comes around and opens the boy's door, and the boy spit on him spit on his pants, and Tidwell grabs him out of the car, uh, does something, gets him to his feet, and then he hits him, and the boy falls against the car, and he's just laying there. There was this bolt that stick out from the car. You know, he used to hold the old car doors on, used to come out in the front of the door, hit his head on that. Well, he finally comes around. Everything gets quiet. He comes around. He unhandcuffs the boy's uh, legs, the one still in the car, and he gets him out. He goes to the, to the trunk opens it there's nothing and i'm not going to say where this is because i don't want to give the location away uh because i'm afraid florida will go out there and dig this boy's body up so he he lays him on the ground he walks over to this building and he gets a shovel and he comes back and he takes this boy and he makes him he says mr tidwell is he is he is he dead mr tidwell is he dead and he said i knew the boy was dead 
So Tidwell took him over, and he made him dig a grave, and he got it down to about probably a little above his knees. He said, deeper. And he, now I'm going to have to watch what I say here because the language gets a little coarse. So I'll, I'll say it in a nice way. And he says, Mr. Tidwell, uh, he says, I knew right then and there that he was going to kill me and not leave any witnesses. And he said, when I got the grave up to about my, my waist, he says, Mr. Tidwell, if you don't hurt me, sir, I'll, I'll perform oral sex on you, and I'll do it real, real good, too. He said, Tidwell didn't say anything, just kept looking at him. He, he could see his face in the moonlight. And he says, pretty soon, he says, Mr. Tidwell, you know, you're a big, strong man. You remind me of, uh, what was the name of, what was his name, Andrew, on the movie? Uh, cool, cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. yeah, you're big and strong, just like Cool Hand Luke. You know, Mr. Tidwell, I hope I can be like you one day, big and strong like Cool Hand Luke. My daddy used to beat me all the time, Mr. Tidwell, and I was afraid of him. I couldn't be strong and brave like Cool Hand Luke like you are. Mr. Tidwell, I want to be just like you. And then Tidwell, he, Tidwell actually started crying. There was tears running down his cheek. And Tidwell says, I used to be a, a good boy, too, when I first went to work here, but all that's changed now. So he had the kid get out of the hole. Or no, he, he went over and he drugged the boy's body with his one hand over, and he threw it in the hole with the boy, told him to get out of the hole and cover the boy's body up. When he got the grave about half full, he stopped, and Tidwell says, cover him up. So he covered the whole hole up and he packed the hump down. Mr. Tidwell says, and this is one of the reasons I knew this boy told, this man told me the truth, because you'd have to believe. If somebody kills somebody and they told you they'd give you a million dollars, if you didn't tell, you might believe that, but you're not going to believe this, and this is why it's true. He says, I'll tell you what, boy. He says, I'm going to take you to the lockup. You're a good boy. And he said, you don't say nothing. And he says, I'll tell you what, you keep your mouth shut, I'll come up here, I'll make life easy for you, and I'll take you to town once in a while, and I'll buy you a Coca-Cola. I'll buy you a soda pop. I knew uh, right then and there, because a soda pop, when you're in the reform school, you might as well be having sex with the superintendent's daughter. That's how great having a soda pop was. And I'll go to my grave knowing this man told the truth. And he buried that boy, and he, he is afraid to come back and show us. He told us the exact, we know exactly where he's buried. But we can't get the feds to come in, and we can't tell the state because they'll go out there and dig him up. Wow. Or destroy the records. Just, yeah, and that's just one of about ten stories of men who dug graves as boys and, 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 and know the boys are buried out there all around that campus. So you guys are just really just stuck in, in, a, in, a, hard, in a bad position. Unless we well, can get the federal government to help us, we are. Well, I'm hoping, I, 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 the only hope I see, unless this federal prosecutor will come across, would be if Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton will come up, and I, they won't give them no CRAP. <laughs> They'll get the fed, feds involved, and they should. I mean, this was a terrible, terrible thing that happened. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. This is this is tough, Brian. Oh. Yes, yes. I mean, when you, you know, you were talking about how scared the boys were. The boys were scared to eat too fast. They were scared to eat too slow. They were afraid to step off the sidewalk when you were marching to get your supper. If you spoke before you were spoken to, you could be taken to the White House and beat half to death, and you didn't know. You didn't know in the middle of the night if they were going to come in there and grab you out of the bed and rape you, and they took many boys to the rape room, which was over under the bottom of the guidance center. 
they 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 come to get get me one night and and i i fought out on the clay court laying on my back just like i used to do in the orphanage when they'd come to get me and i used to kick i was known as the kicker and the only reason i didn't go to the rape room was because mr sealander who's deceased now i found out uh, actually came out and, and saved me and told me that he would call the the local authorities and have them put in in jail if, if they didn't leave me alone so you can imagine going to bed every night and and you couldn't really cry because you didn't want your peers to think you were just a soft-hearted little uh little wimp because then they would take advantage of you and there was a lot of that it was a terrible way to live. It was the average stay there was probably anywhere between ten and eighteen, sixteen, eighteen months. And when you take a young boy or a young girl, I suppose they went through some of the same things. And you do that, and at, at that time, at, at, at that uh, at that time of their life where they're learning and learning to feel and learning what's real and not real and what's right and wrong, and you do that to them, they never recover. They never recover. They may go on and never commit another crime. They may go on and get married. They'll never trust people. They'll do like me. They'll go from marriage to marriage feeling that they're not worthy of having anybody to love them. It totally destroys you. Again, I went on to become an author. I never got in trouble again. I never went to jail again or to prison again. I got a few traffic tickets. I became a respected author. I've written 23 books on child abuse. But I'm not a happy man, and I'll never be a happy man. Hmm. And most of these men will never be happy men. That's tough. Guys, tell us real quick, we have about five minutes left into the show, but really quick, how has this impacted your families? Well, my six wives, I suppose it's impacted them. (laughs) Uh, Wow. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, I would say I I will be 56, uh, uh, 65 in November. And I think it was probably just maybe about maybe five years ago that I really started learning how to love. And it wasn't through my children. I never, I never, uh, I never spanked my children. Uh, I think I threw a remote control at one of my sons one time. That was about it. Um, I was never cruel. I was always a good friend. But I didn't know how to be a father, and I didn't know how to love. I don't think I, I probably never told my children ten times in their lives that I love them because I didn't see the purpose in it. I'm here, aren't I? Just like some guys would tell their wives. But it is through my grandchildren that this feeling came alive in me. I don't care how mean or how many trees they climb or how many times they get on top of the house or how much they mess up my beautiful grass. There's this feeling that overpowers that that I had never known in my life. And it took me past 50 years old to, to ever feel what that feeling of love really felt like, and it is a wonderful feeling. And I hope someday these men will feel that. I, I certainly hope so. Uh, what about you, Andrew? Well, I'm I'm single, um, never been married, but I've noticed, like in my church, in my church, my church family, probably it's the closest family I have, and I noticed a lot of people in my church kind of wondered, why are you? Why are you working on something, you know, this old? Or why, why, are you, why are you seem like you're so um, obsessed with this, this, you know? And you know, do you think this is what Jesus wants you to be doing? And and that's kind of like that's where my struggle has been. Is where like is this what Lord? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Or, or you know? But I do think you know. Uh, the Lord said he, uh, he there's three things he requires of you to uh 
to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's three re- requirements. And I just feel like this this is doing justly by getting justice, even though it, it's justice very delayed, uh, 30, 40, 50 years, still that does, that's, there's justice that still needs to be um, handed out here, as, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, I agree. You know, and I i don't know how to ask this question, but what would make you happy? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just not at the belief that you can't be happy again. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm about as happy as I can be, and I wouldn't consider. Well, let me put it this way. Um, I don't think I'll ever be happy, but this is the best way I can describe it. When I was in the orphanage as a young boy, from the age of four to the age of 14, when I finally got sent to the reform school, I didn't realize that other people... I mean, I knew people had parents, they had mothers and fathers, but they didn't know what that was like, so I didn't miss it. So when people hear about my life in the orphanage, they say, oh, I'm so sorry, you must have been so unhappy. Well, I wasn't unhappy. I I see now I wasn't happy, but I wasn't unhappy. I was just there. And so that's where I am today. I'm, I'm not happy because I don't think I know what happy is, but I'm not unhappy. I'm just where I am. That is who I am. That is my life, and I think that's the way my life will be till the day I die. I'm very happy. This is Andrew. I'm I'm a very happy person, um, and I hope someday I can make Roger happy too. Yes. Uh, well, I had six wives that tried to do it, and they said, stay away from me. <laughs> I'll make you unhappy. <laughs> but, uh, Roger, and I have, Roger and I have really uh, become really good friends. We've only seen each other how many hours probably in, in uh, I mean, you know, we, we, our friendship has developed over the telephone. We've only seen each other maybe four hours, you know, person to person. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But we've become close friends over the phone, and yeah. uh, it's a it's a friendship I value very much. And I I I hope Roger I'm, gets I'm, happy. Yeah. We're we're praying that he he can uh, find that, and also find some type of closure in in dealing with this because I know that this just had to be, or has to be, a torture for him, and just. Thinking that these people are going to walk away from this and not, you know, have to pay the price, but at some point they will have to pay the price. It may not be man's price. It may not be may not go down the way that we want it to go down or whatever. But God is still in control. Amen. He's still in control. But yes, let's yes. get the uh, book information now. How can people buy the book, and how can people, both of you, how can people contact you in case they want you to? Uh, interview on their show or speaking engagements, and um, also give out where people can pick up the book. Okay, about the only place you can get it right now. Eventually, it's going to be on uh, Amazon.com, but right now it's at Lulu L U L U dot com, which is a publisher, 
and just go in there and put in Roger Kaiser or Andrew Puel, or you can put in the truth you decide, and the book will come up. Um, they can contact me at the at the uh, on the website, which is uh, thewhitehouseboys.com. All spelled out: the t h e whitehouseboys.com. And my uh, email address is there on the top. And uh, Andrew, you want to give me your information? Um, what is my information? <laughs> uh, well, now, now, uh, now you do have a number in the back of the book, in, in the book that's coming out next. Uh, so anybody that orders oh, you the mean? book now, your your number. Will, well, all, both of our contact information is is on the last page of the book, also. Okay. Awesome, awesome. And the book is called The Truth You Decide. Correct. And guys, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Um, I tell you, you know, and Roger knows this from the last couple of shows we've done. You know, it's it's just been so difficult to do a show like this because when you have so many emotions and uh like myself and Greg we have so we we have such a love for children and for youth we work with youth in the past and just to imagine that somebody could be so cruel to a child is just disheartening and un, and unnerving and it makes you sad and angry and upset all at the same time you know, so we really applaud you guys for being transparent and open, and we really thank you for coming on the show tonight. Well, I, I appreciate you having us. I really enjoyed myself. I, I tell you, I enjoy doing you guys' show more than any show I've done, and I've done a lot of them. Yes, sir. Thank hey, you. this is not the last time. Yeah, uh, this is my second show I've done, and um, I want to thank you, Brian. Thank you, Gregory, thank uh, you. for for letting me... Uh, talk tonight and uh the, the last time we did one i almost threw up um on the uh <laughs> i thought i was gonna throw up <laughs> wow. he, was, he, he, he was so nervous he said i almost threw up <laughs> good thing it wasn't but, I, but I but i i felt i felt good during doing doing this show so uh, good, roger good. said we don't eat anything <laughs> all you right guys, you guys were great and uh thank you so much Okay, thank you. thank you for having us, sir. Okay, bye-bye. Right, right. And with that being said, you've been listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we ask that you join us again next week as we'll have another wonderful and exciting show. We bid you good evening, God bless you all, and good night. <laughs>